I V M. Should India always put its neighborhood first? Was Nehru's foreign policy idealist or realist? How should we think of external powers acting in the neighborhood? Hello and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the show, my co-host Pavan Shrinath and I sit down and mull over policy, economics, and international affairs. In January, I was at the Raisina Dialogues, and I managed to catch up with Constantino Xavier to talk about small states, India, and foreign policy. Constantino is a fellow at Carnegie India. and his research focuses on indian foreign policy with an emphasis on relations with neighboring countries and south asian regional security over the last month we've seen a crisis unfold in the maldives with voices inside the island nation calling on india for help while india has not intervened in the crisis the chinese have declared the support for current president abdullah yamin as the drama unfolds in the maldives it seemed to me like a deja vu Countries in the Indian subcontinent often look at India suspiciously as a big brother but India is often beholden to help them during a time of crisis when you include an external power in this configuration it gets even more confusing there's hardly any uh, lessons or laws in international politics but there's one is that any regional power is often is always disliked by its smaller neighboring states right it's seen as a bully as a big predominant hegemonic power uh, which does not respect the smaller neighbors which interferes so this is natural uh, there's a great uh, indian strategic thinker from a government officer k subramaniam uh, who has a wonderful quote in the 1980s saying you know we must act like an elephant because we are an elephant we don't a rabbit in south asia we are a big animal in the region and we will always be hated by the small rabbits around us uh so we have to like act like that and get used to that and create also a thick skin there'll be tensions with nepal with bangladesh with sri lanka they'll tease us they'll provoke us we'll violate their sovereignty sometimes but that's in the nature of a beast like an elephant and we have to have a thick skin like an elephant also not to sometimes get over emotional about countries hating us or rallying against us domestically you know nepal anti-indianism and sri lanka anti-indianism that's normal these are just natural things in international relations so you're saying it's fated that the elephant and the rabbits never get along i think sometimes you know about conflict i wish there was more conflict between india and the smaller countries in the sense that the worst thing which can happen between a big power and small power is neglect ignorance and uh, silence basically which is a huge problem in india uh india often tends to want to play in the big club of big nations deal with the united states with russia with china focus on pakistan we have a relevant latin america policy and it ignores and neglects its small neighboring states so the lack of attention towards the small neighboring states in india has been one of the biggest problems in policy making uh so sometimes a crisis actually is good because suddenly south block the pmo wake up to what's happening in nepal or in the maldives uh and finally dedicate some attention to those smaller countries can you give us some context for example what's happening with nepal or sri lanka right now so there's two problems i mean one issue i have to say it's a larger problem in indian civil society and in how we look at these neighboring states how we study them 
You know, I did my PhD research on the relations between India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Burma, Myanmar. So I looked at the 1950s, 60s, and archival research, you know, and I'll get to that in a second about Nehruvian myths about non-interference and what I really encountered in those files. But the interesting is that, you know, it's somehow these days you only wake up to what's happening in Nepal and the Maldives when the Chinese are doing something. And it's almost, you know, in the media, you know, you look at how many front page space the U.S., even Africa gets sometimes and how little Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Myanmar, the Bay of Bengal, the Maldives get. It only happens when the Chinese build some big dam or announce they're going to build some big dam in Nepal or they're getting an, a port in Sri Lanka for 99 years. Suddenly everyone writes about it and the big China menace and the defeat of Indian regional strategy. And the next day, everything goes on and usually. So I think, you know, it, it's good to give attention, but you have to sustain this attention. And if you look at the generation of people who've done good work on Nepal, on Sri Lanka, on Bangladesh again, uh, they're generally in their 60s upwards these days. And you have a huge lack of younger people who really know these countries. And it's natural. You look at young Indian researchers, they want to go to the U.S., they want to work on China, they want to know nuclear issues, on energy security. But very few people have actually worked. So I think there's a huge demand now to focus on these smaller countries. Fair enough. So tell us about your archival research. <laughs> what Nehruvian myths did you You know, I remember the day, you know, I'm starting like a 60-year-old man. <laughs> I remember the day in January 2015 when I walked into the National Archives of India. I had no idea what this beast is about archival research. I was all about foreign policy analysis and current issues. But I was told by some very good mentors and you know, colleagues of mine, go into the archives, don't think too much about it, just walk into Janpat, into this archive, mm-hmm. National Archives of India, take a bus, which I really <laughs> took, the 615 bus. Metro wasn't on then. Uh, there was, but some other bus was better. You know? <laughs> All right. And I'm a former JNU student, so the 615 oh. bus is a very symbolic bus, which we must all take <laughs> from down in Munirka to central Delhi. And I walked out in Janpat of the bus station, I walked in, and I started taking files randomly on Nepal. And I remember the first file I took on Nepal was a file from the mid-50s. And it was a file from the Prime Minister's office, from Nehru, to his ambassador at that point in Kathmandu. And I could not believe my eyes when I opened that file and started reading Nehru's instructions to his ambassador on how to actively manage, you know, the politics inside Nepal. How to form a cabinet, who should be a minister, who not... So he's actively managing Nepal, interfering in Nepal, giving instructions how Nepal should look like in terms of its own politics. You know, and I couldn't believe my eyes because it went against everything I had been taught about Indian exceptionalism, non-interference, a cardinal principle in India's foreign policy, respect for the domestic affairs of other countries, the India that was not doing what the evil Western powers were doing, interfering, intervening, you know, and, you know, that's the first shock I had. And the problem is that, you know, you had such a glorified version of Indian foreign policy that it's so detached from what actually was happening on the ground uh, that it was a shock to me. And that I realized that there was actually a very strong, pragmatic, realist foreign policy. Not evil or good, you know, it's not even like fantastic non-interference or evil bullying and trying yeah, to destroy yeah. Nepal. It was, let's see, it's an open border with Nepal. Nepal is a neighbor of China, and you had active interests in that country, like every great power. Again, like every elephant, you have to protect your surrounding environment. And, you know, it's difficult. You do mistakes if you want sometimes. You interfere too much, too little. 
But there was a clear definition of what India's interests were in Nepal. In the 1950s, those interests meant a more democratic Nepal. So you were actually trying to strengthen strengthening uh, the democracy, the democratic setup in Nepal because you thought that a more democratic, inclusive, modern Nepal, and not a feudal, which was one of the most closed countries as a kingdom till 1950, uh, was an interest in his interest and would be less uh, prone to Chinese influence. Fair enough. Uh, but this also sort of gives a, you know, a credence to what smaller states about India being a bully. But what you're saying is that we should look at these through value-neutral terms. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. And that only comes if you do archival research or, you know, facts, right? If I assume India to be a bully, I'm going to look at India as a bully and assume India is intervening in Sri Lanka in 87, actually in 83 onwards. Many people forget there's a long history of interference in Sri Lanka before 87 of trying to mediate a conflict. And India was not doing it because Indira Gandhi was an evil, you know, real politic person who wanted to control Sri Lanka or because Rajiv Gandhi was upset and didn't like Jayavardhan. No. There were interests which India identified in Sri Lanka. There were concerns about that conflict between the majority and the minority in Sri Lanka escalating, affecting India. Even the decision to arm Tamil rebels, which was, oh, but India did that. It didn't do it out of like an impulse to control Sri Lanka. It did it as a bargaining tool over Colombo to say, you know, you need to deal with them and to have some sense of control also over the Tamil militants, right? Which were across the border and actually had already come into Chennai, into Madras, yeah, yeah, from the yeah. 70s, pre- predating India's decision to arm them and support mm-hmm. them. So basically, yes, issues like bully, uh, uh, non-interference, big, uh, brother. big brother, you know, they really cloud our ability to understand what was really driving Indian decision makers. Mm-hmm. And only Nehru, several smart, intelligent ambassadors, foreign policy diplomats, external intelligence, internal intelligence, and army officials. Across these various bureaucracies and government agencies, you've always had a very clear thought about the neighborhood uh, and how to deal with these things. And, you know, you'll ask me, I'm sure, next, why haven't we had the ability to have an unclouded, clear sky perspective in your foreign policy? (laughs) I can see you looking already saying, why? (laughs) Why have we come to this? You know, we have come to this because we've kept the archives inaccessible. You know, it just, I'm you know, privileged to be part of a first generation of 10, 20 people who've done some work. And I'm not as much as a historian as my, some of my colleagues who've done deep, deep work. But I was fortunate to be sensitized to the importance to going in there and at least switch my mind once I read things and say, hey, there's a very different India of the India of practice, which is so India different from the India of the speech of Nehru, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, if you don't have ways to test speech with practice, you're going to believe speech and analyze speeches and believe speeches as an article of faith which has happened a lot in terms of Indian foreign policy scholarship. Uh, and I think for the first time now that the archives are opening up, people are going in there, snooping around, reading, like yeah. me, opening their eyes and saying, wow, there's a very different tradition of how India dealt with. I think we'll have much more informed, and again, to use your term, neutral-free, all uh, these more neutral or value-free research, yeah, yeah. at least to set some facts right. Yeah, I think like in the US, right? I think they declassify files for every 20, 30 years. Uh, And the easiest example that comes to mind is uh, the way people uh, looked at Nixon's foreign policy with respect to Bangladesh, the blood telegram, very famously. So, uh, but what struck me as interesting through all of this is that 
rather than looking at you know good or bad or anything moralistically you look at it in terms of what the national interest was at that time yes. right and then you try to see what the narrative was and if the two of them match uh what do you think india's national interest is now with respect to its smaller neighbors see in some ways it hasn't changed much sorry to say that, to bring the historical perspective too but you know every regional power has something called a sphere of influence and this is not a sphere of influence that you've inherited from the brits it's not just because the british thought of south asia as an integrated space that india somehow thinks we need to preserve this and also think of nepal as part of our sphere of influence you think of nepal as part of your sphere of influence because you have an open border with nepal which means there's a free mobility across that border If you look at speeches of Nehru in 1950, he says that anything happening on the Himalayan frontier between Nepal and China is of direct security significance to India. So he's basically saying Nepal is not a sovereign state because everything happening in Nepal and across that border in a different country is seen as affecting directly India's security and is going to be seen as you know an immediate indian security concern but that's another strong statement to say that nepal is not a sovereign state it's a very un-neruvian statement yeah, right yeah. there we go but if you look at his statements he says as much as we like nepal to be strong and independent there are certain security issues which directly impinge us and will require a special relationship with nepal i mean sovereignty is as you know never 100% yeah. zero there's degrees of sovereignty and nepal as a virtue of its location and its relation with india has always had and will always have to have a special relationship with india which is more special if you want than its relationship with china similar to the maldives similar to bangladesh similar to sri lanka and when you hear these days the maldivians reassuring india for example that we have an india first policy or when you see in sri lanka someone saying we have a special relationship with india and we are aware of india's con- special concerns these are very important signaling mechanisms where the smaller neighbors tell india we are understand that you are concerned about certain things and we have a special relationship because you're closer to us than far away yeah. china we will try to play the balancing game which is, again is the nature of every small state in the region and is natural india understands that but at the same time there will be a special relationship and coming to your question that special relationship is under stress these days and that is a major change departing now from the historical continuities i was just exploring and that change is that for the first time in centuries i can say you have an external power beyond south asia beyond the subcontinent actively playing an influential role within south asia you know whether it was under the brits even the mughals if you want under uh, uh, independent india until recently you had this zone always run from kolkata or delhi yeah this was an insulated security scenario the russians couldn't get in here the americans tried couldn't even the soviets at some point right you insulated this area from any extra regional influence yeah for the first time in the history of the subcontinent now you have an extra regional power would actually a strong footprint in sri lanka in nepal in bangladesh in the maldives you know and that fundamentally changes the way india not only thinks about these things but has to act and respond to this uh there is another school of thought that believes that uh by using uh you know an other external power in the neighborhood uh india's tying itself down 
to just the Indian subcontinent. And they argue that, you know, India should be distracted by, um, you know, its smaller uh, relations, but rather focus on um, larger spheres of influence and seeing how it can really rise. What are your opinions on this? Yeah, I think it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> I see, I know where you come from. It's a great question because you're saying that that's exactly the problem in terms of we need to be relevant in Africa, in the US, in East Asia, in the South China Sea to piss off the Chinese. All that discourse is wonderful and is important too. But you need to consolidate your presence in your own region. And there's a fundamental difference how you consolidate yourself as a regional power. There's one traditional one, which, you know, is one of active denial of other powers influencing. You're basically insulating South Asia from you know, as a cocoon from anyone from outside. You're keeping it disconnected from the region and the world. So basically, till the 1990s, India equated security, strategic security and autonomy with disconnection, if you want, yeah. and little influence between South Asia and its bordering regions. So you kept isolated. So you didn't have any economic relations. You didn't have any strong security links. You were actually trying to cut down you know, cut yeah, any yeah. links across the borders. What has that led to? I'll give you one interesting data point. Today, land-based trade between India and Myanmar, it's a 1,500 kilometers long border between India and Myanmar in the northeast of India. So land-based trade, official land-based trade between those two countries is less than what India trades with Nicaragua in Central America. Okay, so this is a state of lack of connectivity between India and its neighbors and a product of decades of curtailing those links cutting those borders, cutting the fluidity and mobility from those borders. This has changed now. And for the first time, coming to change again, we have an India that's actively committed to building connectivity and saying we will be more secure, we will be wealthier if we create connectivity across the Bay of Bengal, across Northeast India with Myanmar, with Sri Lanka, with Bangladesh, with Nepal. Why? Because you're responding to... Chinese influence, of course, and connectivity in those projects. And that's uh, very interesting. I think that's where we are currently in India. Whether it's the Chinese support for Yamin's regime in the Maldives, or leasing the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka for 99 years, or Nepal's tension-filled relations with India, there's a cacophony of voices on how India should respond. Considering Constantino's opinions on putting the neighborhood first, I got curious about how he thought India should respond, particularly towards countries in the neighborhood that want to pursue economic growth and development with or without India's help. The need of the hours to act rather than think, which means basically you shouldn't be thinking or be concerned too much about what the Chinese are doing in terms of denying the space for them to do that. So if the Maldives wants to sign an FTA or has signed an FTA with China, free trade agreement, great, let them go ahead, offer them a better deal, Yeah. right? If the Chinese are building a port or developing a port in Hambatota in southern Sri Lanka on a 99-year lease, ask yourself, what can you offer Sri Lanka in terms of developing a good trans-regional port for shipping connectivity in South Asia and Southeast Asia in Sri Lanka? If the Chinese under President Xi Jinping announced $24 $24 billion worth in economic assistance, loans and aid to Bangladesh two years ago. You have to ask yourself, why is India only offering 3 or $4 billion to Bangladesh being its neighboring country? If the Chinese are building a railway link or planning to build a railway link between Kathmandu and the border 
uh, you have to ask yourself, how come we haven't been able to build a single railway link into Kathmandu, which is just at a 1,000 meter altitude and not across the Himalayas? So rather than the old idea from the 1980s, which uh, one former foreign minister coined very popularly called the right of first refusal, uh, K. Natwar Singh. Yeah, yeah. So basically that if Nepal wants something, it has to come to India on to our project. India is going to sit on it, say, oh, we can't do this, we can't deliver, but you can't go to anyone else either. And the project doesn't go ahead. So rather than right of first refusal, the, I think the challenge of the day is to be able to have a principle of capacity of first delivery. Right? That you're actually capable to come into Kathmandu and say, we're going to build this hydro project, this railway link, this port across the region. And that is, I think, the big challenge for India now. Rather than getting too much concerned about what the Chinese are doing, what are you doing to this? And things have changed. You have the first prime ministerial visit, bilateral visit from an Indian prime minister to Nepal in 20 years, just to speak about the neglect this region has yeah, been yeah. Uh, subject to. You have the first bilateral visit to Sri Lanka by a prime minister in 30 years, since 1987, almost 30 years. And actually, 87 was for less than a day when yeah, Rajiv Gandhi went to sign yeah. a very coercive agreement for the IPKF. Uh, so if you go back, it's actually nine, late 70s was the last official proper bilateral visit by an Indian Prime Minister to Sri Lanka. Uh, it's the first Prime Minister to visit all of Bay, Bay of Bengal states in exclusive bilateral visits since Nehru. Okay, so this is a state of neglect which we had so far in the neighborhood. And this is, I think, at least the sustained interest we've been seeing over the last few years. But there's challenges. And I can tell you that's these on these visits and big you know visits and flashy speeches and meetings which you know this government has been doing which are good which have sustained interest you have to deliver now and that's going to be very very difficult yeah which just leads me to the last two questions what do you think are the major challenges that we are facing or will face and uh, the second is uh, what uh, what should be on India's priority list in the region yes I think the biggest challenge is this capacity for its delivery. Uh, this relates to the nature of India's bureaucratic decision-making, the time it takes, the public sector companies who take a lot of time, are uninvested in doing these projects often. So I'll tell you what the ideal world will look like. The current world is one in which the Ministry of External Affairs and Indian government, if I may use the term, bribes a PSU or even a private Indian company, say a, a Tata on hydropower, to go in a neighboring country and do a project because it's in India's strategic interest. Those projects never really advance. They take years, decades to go ahead because no one's really committed to it. Uh, the money runs out. There's significant delays. That's the current state. Okay. The ideal state is in which you had an Indian private company which is able to compete against a Singaporean a Chinese and an American company for a hydro project in Nepal and wins it because it's competitive and it has the capacity to deliver on that, right? And I think that leads me to the final point and we've been talking so much about strategy, foreign policy, diplomacy, but we're not talking about economics. And if India is uh, unable to open up its economy and really create a competitive uh, environment within India for foreign companies, but also for its own companies, you know, not a few companies who live under the protection of the state, you know, and are managing this is sort of an a, 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 a oligopoly, if I may say so. If you have competitive Indian companies who are able to bid for projects in the neighborhood and, and deliver on key economic projects, 
that's when we'll have you know the, in India which will be able to deliver first, better, quicker uh, than China and energy power. And that again requires domestic reforms within India and a stronger market economy within India. So that's it, folks. If we build capacity and deliver on our promises, then these countries will not look anywhere else. But also remember this: small states depend on playing larger powers against each other to see who offers them the best deal. So India needs to weigh that this is part of a larger chessboard of international relations. That's a wrap for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. Send us your comments and brickbats to podcast at thinkpragati dot com, or reach out to Pavan and me on Twitter. You can listen to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next Thursday. There she stands. A podcast addict, outside the bank, having travelled several miles to get in with other poor souls like her, the journey, though daunting for this youngling, will have some comfort because she has downloaded her favourite podcast. You can see more of her species on ivmpodcasts.com, your one-stop destination where you can check out the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.